Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nowen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nowen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nowen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nowen, or perhaps even a recording of Henry himself. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to reach out to the world with Henry Nowen's writings, his encouragement, and of course, his reminder that each of us is a beloved child of God. Now, let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. I want you to meet a very bright, interesting thinker, Anne Snyder. She's written a book titled The Fabric of Character. Anne has studied hundreds of organizations, exploring what character looks like at its best in nonprofits, in corporate settings, in the public sector, and beyond. She's looked to see what it takes to form and grow character today. Anne Snyder is the editor in chief of Comment Magazine. From 2016 to 2019, Anne directed the Philanthropy Roundtable's Character Initiative. In this capacity, she wrote this excellent guidebook. The Fabric of Character, A Wise Giver's Guide to Renewing Our Social and Moral Landscape. Anne is a 2020 Emerson Fellow and a Senior Fellow at the Trinity Forum. You may also know her through her podcast, The Whole Person Revolution. Anne, I'm so glad to have the opportunity to talk with you today. I've loved your book. This book has called so many of my own behaviors and attitudes into question. It's inspiring and challenging and rooted in life-giving examples of how to achieve and hone one's character. But it's much larger than a self-help book because it's talking about creating the kind of organizations that build character. You write, character really is destiny. Help us understand what you mean. Yeah, well, it's so nice to be here. Um, Thank you for having me. Well, I was, you know, quoting, a, you know, a Greek philosopher, I think it was Heraclitus there, so it was trying to just, um, you know, I guess bring to the reader's mind something we've probably all heard in our lives. Um, and it was as much sort of a humble admission on my part that I very much went through a journey in writing the book, and not only because I didn't, I sort of along the way um, discovered that the word character was a more loaded word than I anticipated it being for many different kinds of people and sort of strangely could get polarized. Um, And so I I just sort of went through this journey of like trying to stay committed to some of the ideals that I think, you know, and as a person that has sort of strived for the morally beautiful and, um, you know, when you meet someone of like really sterling character, I think even even to this day, we can't help but kind of respect what we see, even if we can't name it, it's like we know it when we see it. And so anyways, I think I was, I finished this book back in 20, end of 2018, and it felt like the country where I live, the U.S., was sort of in just a lot of soul searching, sometimes really productive, sometimes unproductive, um, and that for all of our, on the one hand, you know, and this is in contention right now, but I think back a couple of years ago, you know, all of our sort of idolatry of meritocratic logic and what it is to achieve, 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 and sort of putting winning as the number one value or success in a certain kind of maybe materialistic or status oriented metric at the top. Um, you know, I think there's just a lot of distractions 
or distracting definitions as to what the good life really is, both a rewarding life, but also the beautiful life. And uh, through my travels and through reporting for the purposes of this book to try to, you know, figure out how to convey a fresh message of an ancient thing, um, I just was so struck by how those, particularly those sort of institutional leaders, but also custodial staffers and people who are receptionists and people who clean houses and mothers and neighbors, et cetera, kind of every, you know, that I was just starting to see the world much more through um, kind of who is humble and who really is honest and who's self-respecting and who's willing to admit their mistakes and who's selfless and self-sacrificing. Um, and it just kind of became this quiet delight and delighted way to look at people and how they, there was sort of a, gets a sense that, both individuals and institutions that keep sort of a moral heartbeat, a coherent moral heartbeat at the center of who they are and what they're trying to achieve um, just seem to have more enduring power and frankly, more sort of influence, uh, um, at least locally of, of those who came in contact with them. And this is both institutional and individual. So um, I think, yeah, it was just a way of sort of invoking a very familiar saying that was trying to suggest I myself kind of went on a journey of really, you know, I'm of a generation that might view the word character as a little bit joyless and, um, you know, a little starchy and goody tissue or something. And yet I really kind of was humbled by how um, there's something really importantly universalizing or at least um, bridge building even about moral characters, the quality of which you're viewing someone and not their, say, partisan orientation or what social class they are or race or whatever else um so there was yeah i i think like suggesting that this like deeply humanistic core faculty of who we are um has is the end and be all there there was just something about that that i was like wow that's so like wonderful to like land there in a world that often feels like you don't really quite know where to land for a um clear moral you know a clear sense of compass you know it was interesting to me you chose some wonderful examples i mean they were all it's, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to sort of see it put into action. And, and for example, I, I enjoyed the example of the Oaks that you went to. There, You went to several different um, places or organizations within this and, and, and find in them um, these uh, determining factors to, to create, well, in a sense, to foster character within all those that are part of the organization. And, of course, you know, when you look at framing the lives of young people or raising young people educating them what a wonderful place to to have a kind of clear set of motives tell tell us a little bit about some of the things that for example you got out of the oaks tell us what the oaks is and and then maybe a little bit about what you saw happening there because that was the part that I went oh that I want to share that because that's so rich for families as a whole yeah, no, the Oaks, um, I, I really visited, honestly, like hundreds of different kinds of organizations and institutions all throughout the U.S. in an effort to just grasp my, you know, try to find the thread through these, this quote-unquote middle ring of all these different kinds of institutions. And the Oaks just really captured my heart and mind. I got there and I was immediately, you know, again, to get back to this sort of notion more recently, I think of the word character having baggage and a lot of people in our current, you know, very pluralistic moment and society that's going to only become more that way are often, well, would say things to me in the course of this work, like, well, what kinds of character are you promoting and whose character? And are we talking about 
a certain like waspy set of, or say male waspy Protestant ideals from a hundred years ago. We don't want that anymore. Like that's culturally sort of imposing or, so there's all that kind of pushback, which I can go, I, I have to go a little soapbox. I won't hear, but I, Sometimes I found that a little bit like just wasting time, people push back on that. Um, but what the Oaks just sort of did, by, it sort of cut through those kinds of objections and paired both a real love of beauty and of healthy relationships and sort of of shaping young you know, kids' desires in a very diverse setting. So it's one of the most ethnically, racially, and socioeconomically diverse schools in the state of Indiana. It's actually a network of schools, and they kind of pair both kind of classical education with a with a, um, a philosophy of, a, of an English educational reformer from the 19th century that I had not actually known before named Charlotte Mason. Uh, but they do it in this context that's not um, homogenous at all. Like it's very, you know, kids from all these different kinds of backgrounds. And somehow through just a real intentional, I mean, they, they talk about, um, that the, the sort of whole purpose of an education or one crucial purpose of a good education is to teach you the science of relationships. And that's kind of pairing, you know, the humanities world with the um, opposite, it's sort of tech, you know, or yeah. counterpart. Yeah. Um, and it's really just lived. Like you walk in and it's just one of these places where you sense like relation, healthy relationships are the end for all things, whether that's frankly how you do on an exam or whether that's whether, you know, I think I gave an example early on in the chapter of a young boy who was acting out in class over and over and over. And, um, you know, a teacher pulled him out of the classroom and was like, what are you doing, Devin? And um, he was like, he wasn't really, you know, <laughs> he, he wasn't really uh, contrite. And she, she just said, you know, I'm really worried about you. Your conscience is getting really small. And he was seven years old and he had no idea what a conscience was. Uh, he was like, well, this is, you know, Basel, what's the, what's the conscience? And and he just was not liking the fact that some muscle that he had was undersized. Um, and uh, and she just and and she said that there's a way to grow it back to normal size. Your conscience is shrinking, but we can grow it back. And he was like, well, how do we do that? Because I don't want to be different from anyone else. And she said, well, you just have to ask for forgiveness of the some of the people you, um, you know, you did X Y Z to in the classroom. Um, and there was just, I think there was, it was like a very different, but also like culturally uniting way to talk about, um, to not sort of judge people for moral right and wrong on those grounds alone, but to put it in the context of any wrong you do is ultimately like harming this broader social fabric. And our community only thrives if you are contributing to it with your best self. So they sort of lived out this mystery of the individual's moral agency and, um, you know, I think that just the sheer joy of, of a sustainable, healthy community that touches people at all walks of, you know, at all levels, kids, adults, staff, faculty. Um, so I could say more about the Oaks, but it is a beautiful, it's just a beautiful school that is, um, you know, gave me a lot of hope for the future of education if more schools sort of had a chance to visit and, and see their, their unique logic. Well, it's interesting because it did stand out to me too. It's funny I'm, because I've got grandchildren. You kind of look at it and you go, oh, I love what they're emphasizing. I wish there was something like that available in the world that I'm in or the world that my grandchildren are in. And I just, I, I was impressed. I'm curious, 
I, I mean, this book is rich and there's many good examples in it. And I really want to encourage those that are listening, especially as you're beginning to think about, well, how could we as an organization, how could we as an institution of any sort be better at the issues of of character? I, I, I want to encourage people to get the book because it's not it's not something that is, uh, it's deep and it's rich. But I'd love to ask you, you know, what, in a sense, were the elements that have shaped your character? I'm curious because I'm just getting to know you through this interview. And um, I'm very struck by the uh, the directions that you have chosen. So I'd love to know what, what do you look back on and say really had um, a formative impact on your character? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a thank you for that question. Um, I, I think one thing I discovered in doing this work is you can't just be distanced and abstract about it you have to be personal both in the sharing of oneself even in my case as an interviewer often or in um you know trying to solicit people's own honest thoughts I had to kind of reflect personally so yeah I you know I think um this is I'm going to say some things that are very probably universal and then a couple things that are a little unique to my own experience and and I should premise by saying I have a long way to go in character development myself <laughs> so this is not like trying yeah. to advertise my character but yeah, I, you know, I was very lucky. I had two very loving parents and also beyond that, just like a set of sort of webbed relationships of extended family that though we lived overseas for quite a chunk when I was young, um, in Asia largely. Um, and I, and, but my parents were Americans and my mother had grown up in Peru. And so she also was fairly, we just sort of like global, it was like global cross-cultural exposure every day paired with just a deep you know, actually that inner ring, that like home base of a lot of love, a lot of creativity, a lot of effervescence, a lot of music in the house, and just a sense that the world was colorful and that you should approach it with joy. And there was no such thing as boring. So I'm just very grateful for kind of those early lessons of just a deeply attentive, and this is pre-cell phones and everything, but, you know, a deeply attentive family that uh, with both a father and a mother who just invested a lot of time in my sister and me. So that was, you know, looking back, it's obviously just a hugely secure base. Um, I think the cross-cultural experience from a young age has always been just a part of my desire to try to listen first and be curious. Like I, I tend to, I really don't like labeling people because I just feel like if, you know, if you've kind of been in multiple moral, not moral universes necessarily, but cultural universes, you um, you just, you know, you, you just grow up assuming everyone's so much more complicated than one singular narrative. And I think especially right now and certainly the American environment, I'm just so grateful that I don't feel imprisoned um, or feel forced to imprison other people in some, you know, ideological category or just give them room. Um, I played a lot of music growing up and that was in a funny way. I was a serious pianist. I think something about being exposed to the range of drama and some of the classical works, um, just even in sound and harmony and rhythm and to say nothing of just the discipline of, of, of trying to become excellent at an instrument. Um, I actually felt like that deeply shaped my own sense of, well, just the gradual day-to-day work that it takes to try to master a craft, but also some, you know, what you learn in performing, but just the music itself, I think sort of really gave me a wide emotional, hopefully not too emotional, but a wide emotional life. Um, and then I, you know, I came to a, um, 
Christian faith and, and actually a very secular high school environment, which I have met many incredible people who have zero faith or are atheists, and sometimes they're a lot better than those who are religious. But in my case, I think I discovered this like personalist and coherent vision of, um, yeah, a vision of love that was like really other than anything I encountered in the world. And I did so in an environment that had no frame of reference for specifically for Christianity. It was in New England at the time. And, um, you know, and, and I think being both convinced that I'd found something really gorgeous and true, but having to be very alienated about that sort of newfound faith as a teenager, probably just, I don't know. I, it wasn't always easy, but it, it gave me a, Again, you know, I don't mind being a being sort of a minority, I guess, in a context where everyone believes something different. I'm not. I don't find that threatening. Uh -huh. I find it um, like an adventure. So, ah, you're yeah, I have a lot of reading, and there's more I could say, but yeah, <laughs> and then some hard things in my later twenties, and like you know, a lot of struggles later on, and some very deep losses, and um, and then institutions and sort of new families that embraced me in those times. So, yeah. We all can tell such long stories. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. You you ended up at Wheaton, didn't you? Is that where you studied? I did, yes, yes. This was a culture shock at the time for me, but ultimately a good one. Ultimately oh. a good one, yes. Well, you know, I, I'm going to go back into the book because one thing I'd love to hear from you about. You wrote, when you visit elite college campuses today, it's striking how outwardly driven students are, how sensitive to external feedback. Millennials are simultaneously stressed and coddled. Often their sense of self seems driven by the acclaim of others, which can lead to poor decision-making, unnecessary anxiety, and hypersensitivity to uncomfortable content. And then it's funny because as I read that, what what you really seem to be looking at and, and saying is, and asking, have we created a generation of praise junkies? Did you, do you feel like in a sense when we've made everything so external as opposed to an internal um, work of character, uh, we're ending up reaping some rather dire results? Yeah, and I say so, I do think we have, although it's complex and I feel, I want to say that we've created a generation of we or society or the boomer parents or something, whatever, whoever you want to attribute. Yeah. Um, cre create a generation of praise. I do think that's largely true. Um, but I say, I want to say it with some modesty because um, I also just think sort of uncontrollable technological forces in the last decade or so, um, especially social media, especially like little TV screens in our hands or computer screens in our hands all day long, um, has, has, you know, and paired with actually sort of the erosion of these sort of community building institutions and full presence in person has just contributed to a very um, lonely and insecure generation that is hyper anxious. And that on the one hand, you know, and this is so not original for me to say, but is just more, more hyper connected in a way that often leads to shaming and judgment um, in the virtual space and yet in sort of physical sort of true engagement, I think uh, just feel very much without a moral compass, very much without sort of a coherent, uh, meaningful community that they can find their own role within. Um, and so what you end up with is just a lot of sort of individualistic sort of status or success seeking for those that have even the luxury or the opportunities to do that. Um, without 
without an, a deeper understanding of why you might want to be excellent at something. Um, so, yeah, I think there is just, there's, there, ten, there tends to be a very fragile generation whose inner core was never attended to either by their educational systems or, or even, you know, parents. Um, uh, and I, I'm not smart enough to sort of diagnose all that or explicate it, but it, it just was, it has been an observation. I think it's a very interesting observation, yeah. Uh, you also wrote across multiple domains, from education to marketplace to millennials' generations' longings and demands, there's a kind of humanistic renaissance going on, a renaissance in which the needs of the whole person are getting a fresh hearing. You might call it the whole person revolution. I found that a fascinating phrase, the whole person revolution. Tell me what you're seeing. Uh, sure. Well, I'm uh, funny. It's fun to hear that because I actually have had a lot of joy this year doing my own po- podcast that I decided to call the whole person revolution sort of focusing Perfect. on what I call like community <laughs> shepherds that are both themselves like quite holistic in their lens, whether they're in social service or they're police officers or, or even chefs or, um, but yeah, I, that, this was a very fun thing to discover. Um, some of it's like sort of the more recent rise of positive psychology and sort of academia and in our public education systems. And I have some problems with positive psychology. I think it's a little thin in how it understands the moral life, but, um, but there are some good things. And I think they're in part because, and I, I don't know all the reasons for this, but, um, Something has occurred in the last 15, 20 years where I think young people in particular, um, and again, maybe it's because they're less sort of religiously devout, they're not going to be part of other um, kind of self-consciously kind of moral communities, uh, but, but what they have left is when they get out into the real world is they have their working life, and, and so there's just been a huge clamor. They've Somewhere along the way, I think young people have recognized that they are more than just heads on sticks. They're more than just, um, you know, workers in a factory, and they want more from specifically the workplace um, to sort of tap into the quote-unquote whole, their whole selves. And, you know, we could debate sort of whether workplaces should cash out of that or not, but I think that just the there's almost, there's like a, there is sort of a secularized acknowledgement that we are spiritual creatures, we are psychological creatures, and we are certainly social creatures. And um, in a society of sort of worrisomely increasing loneliness and isolation, how can all sorts of institutions actually come to recognize more than just the utility that you as an individual have to bring, but something deeper and more whole. Um, and you just see this in all sorts of sectors. Like, you know, I think there's a lot of medical schools that are trying to figure out how do we, and some of it's in response to crisis, tragic crisis, like too many suicides amongst medical students. Okay. How do we come alongside these students and not make it all feel like such a horrible grind where they lose their whole passion for becoming doctors in the first place. They lose their whole why. How do we, um, you know, give them a fuller picture of what it means to truly care or to sort of layer in, a deeply other-centered care into their practice. You know, I think you you yeah. you see it. It's tricky. Well, there's more I could say, but yeah, there's yeah. just there's a and there are debates around this. But there's there's an overarching. Um, I mean, you look at some of the more successful TED talks in the last five years, and they've all been like deeply humanistic in what they're pointing to. And so, for all of our investments in STEM and all that, all of which is fine and good. Um, I think you've got also a lot of other thinkers and doers who um, don't want to 
allow us to become dominated by purely machines. There's like a recognition of the human soul and our longings as a part of it. It's interesting because as I read your book, one of the things that I kind of felt was an, an underlying current was the longing for community and the longing for good relationships and for people to even learn how to have a good relationship, how to repair relationships. I think we're at a point right now um, societally where that's going to be one of the biggest questions we face. How do we repair relationships? They have thinned and gotten very worn, but I found that was one of the, within the, within the various things that you looked at, the various groups you looked at, I just found at the base of it was how much we long for community and how much we long to know how to have a good relationship with others. Uh, the two are kind of work together, obviously. Yeah. In, in your b- book, you introduce 16 questions. You, you know, there's sort of a guide to great character formation. And obviously, I'm not going to ask you for all 16 questions because they're pretty deep and pretty intense. But I wouldn't, and, and I'm going to encourage people to get the book because I think you'll enjoy it. But I would like to say, you know, uh, are there any that you would, would like to share that you say, you know, should be considered? A few that you thought were kind of interesting that maybe we haven't touched on. Uh, sure. Yeah, no, I, I always get, um, I always laugh because when I talk to teachers or pastors or anyone who's in a position of public speaking, when they hear I have some sort of 16 points or 16 questions, they're like, are you crazy? I reduced them as much as I could. Um, and they were really born out of observing some of the healthiest, um, you know, organizations that really are forming and sometimes transforming young people, adults, et cetera. Um, I probably, they're all important, but I would say a few that I'll, I'll just mention here um, is actually one of them is just the first one. And I, I use an old word called telos or telos. Um, and it's basically, I think I, I and I forward, I forward, I expressed all these principles in the form of questions so that both the philanthropic world, but also organizational leaders might have a rubric to kind of ask, sort of self-interrogate. Um, as they think about the culture of their own organizations. And the telos one, I think I said something like, you know, does your organization have a clear, strong reason for, for existing in the world um, that's embraced and pursued by all of its members? Does it give its members or constituents like organizing criteria for what to love? And, you know, I think it's, it's sort of a very big question. Again, it gets at this notion of do you have kind of a, a deeper why than simply a materialistic reasons for being or, um, you know, pure profit or, or whatever. Um, so, so that was one. Um, another one, um, and this won't happen everywhere, but, um, uh, you know, vulnerability and accountability has psychological safety been established such that individuals feel free to be honest. Um, you know, is there a structure of mutual accountability? Uh, and I think that is something like, so many young people in particular to go back to our earlier conversation just crave but they don't even totally know how to allow themselves to be seen deeply and to see another deeply and there are certain organizations that just model they both sort of give you the space to feel like whatever I say is sort of safe even if at a certain point I will be challenged to grow um, but I am allowed to sort of divulge some of my deepest struggles in this setting um, Another is, you know, this was just a sign that something was usually going really right in a company, in a school, um, in a local healthcare facility sometimes even. Um, 
Uh, I mean, I think you can even find this in AA or sort of recovery groups. Uh, and this is joy. Just is there joy in the house? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think I, I added like our hospitality and unconditional welcome, a key part of the organization's DNA. Um, and there's a lot more, you know, I think this is sort of an ancient yeah. spiritual principle, but there's a lot more science in recent years that is really fascinated by the presence of joy. And, you know, for instance, going back to the Oaks Academy, that's the first thing you notice when you not even walk in the halls, you're just walking up the steps of one of the campuses is just this deep sense of welcome and delight that the children and the parents have as they're departing one another and the kids are going into their adventures. And um, I think there's some like really very prominent social scientists, Johns Hopkins and elsewhere. And they'll say things like, you know, we've learned that you don't actually learn unless joy is a part of the process. And so it was kind of fun to feel like, something that feels probably obvious at the intuitive level is now a whole sort of field of study. In my own life, I know that what I have found is that I need joy and peace to mark a decision. That to me is something I look for. I look for joy. It needs to be the marker of, am I, is this the right path? Is this the right decision? I find it so, it's become something I watch for. Did you want to share one more uh, of those 16 wonderful questions you got? I'm curious. Uh, sure. I'll, say, I'll share one more. Um, this, and, this, and some of these are in slight tension with one another, but one that I think is, is still important is I, I think I, I framed it um, the power of the particular. So does the organization have a particular identity, a fixed set of norms that gets passed on to its members? Does it have a unique quality that is recognizable and those it has shaped? And, um, you know, some of this is just also a sign of like the community that you've been a part of that you're so proud to have been a part of, you know, sometimes I wouldn't say they're all character forming, but of course you can find this in certain fraternities and sororities, but you also find it in military veterans. You find it in those who have been through AA groups. You find, you know, even my own alma mater, Wheaton, which is not a perfect place, but, you know, I meet fellow Wheaties now out and about in the world and even it's funny like you can almost there's just some the, the subculture of the place and the way in which they shaped this intellectually was different and unique and intentional and you can kind of sense I when I meet these other brains I'm like you're a weedy aren't you and there, there's something about that <laughs> that just hints at like a um an intentional like you believe certain things and they could be at any level deep or not so deep um, and you, you sort of structure your institutions, rituals, um, and whole cultures um, in such a way that it like leaves a fragrance on, on, on the people who, pass, who traveled through. Beautifully put. And you wrote in your book, ultimately, when it comes to character, we're shaped by the things and people who mean the most to us, in part because they command our att- affection and respect, but also simply because of our natural inclination to spend more time with them. Well, of course, David Brooks is your husband, and he is also somebody who's written about character. And I guess this is no coincidence, but I was curious about how you've influenced each other, whether he's been the greatest influence on you or you on him uh, on this issue of character. I'm curious. Well, we joke now it's sort of sometimes hard to know where one person's mind ends and the other begins, which I suppose is marriage. <laughs> He's sort of, <laughs> sort of blurring into one another. Um, you know, back in the day, we so we actually got to know each other through his writing of The Road to Character, um, which I think came out in 2015. And um, 
I, you know, he was at, at the time really trying to write a book about just epi- what he would call epistemic modesty or epistemological modesty, like basically have, being sort of cautious about thinking you know everything. So it's a little bit more of an intellectual virtue. Um, but then he got more interested in sort of people of excellence who were also really humble and how, and as he was going about it at the time, he was really not at all interested in sort of theological or religious um, sources. And I, somewhere in that project, I was like, you know, I'd love to help because there's, you definitely, you, you could write this purely on kind of University of Chicago, Western Civ um, sources alone and very philosophical, but there's also like some probably fairly radical examples of of humility that come out of various monotheistic traditions. Um, so I kind of was like, you should read Augustine and you should read Dorothy Day. And so I guess that, that process of even my own instincts, which then led to me spending a lot of time both doing, helping with the research of these various figures he highlighted. Um, and then just, I think our own conversations, um, I probably, I, I, I don't mean to sound, but, but I probably opened his eyes like the, the transcendent that that there's a, it, sometimes it's hard to make sense of one's own shortcomings and blessings without some reference to a transcendent. So I think that was kind of key. And then he, I would, you know, I, I didn't realize I had some particular distinctive kind of focus on the moral life and all of its aspects. But I think he really encouraged me that, um, you know, I would think like 20 years ago, maybe, like I don't know, let's say Oprah or pastors or uh-huh. name a variety of folks who talk about that, like the, you know, and they obviously have large followings, but they that it was it wouldn't be taken seriously or it wouldn't be part of like um, some of our large problems as a society. And David just always I think early on he was like actually more and more like if people are worried about sort of impoverished relationships and are worried about a society that doesn't have a shared moral narrative to find them together. And I think some of your native interests are, um, you know, could be come in handy. So, yeah. uh, and of course he shaped me in a million other ways. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I was just, I thought it was such a surprise because I have David's book and, you know, put two and two together and went, oh, you're both interested in character. This is really quite something. Now, I know you've also been deeply influenced by Henry Nouwen's book, Compassion. And I'd love to hear a little bit yeah. about that. The subtitle to this book is A Reflection on the Christian Life. And I think it's significant that it was a collaboration that came out of three people talking through how to live compassionately in their world. And it was funny. It was kind of mm-hmm. the early 60s. And they're, they're worried about this. And I'm thinking it was the most important question they felt they could address. And I wanted to mention all three authors. Henry was obviously one of them. Don McNeil and Douglas Morrison was the other one. And there's... Uh, a beautiful, an additional beautiful component to this book, and those are the drawings yeah. of Joel Villartiga. I think that's how you'd say his name. Um, mm-hmm. And I just love to hear what you got out of this book because as I looked at their thing of saying, uh, this is the most important question we can address today, and they're talking sort of middle 60s, I feel like there could never be a more important question than we could address right now. So tell me, what, yeah. how, how did compassion influence you? Well, I, you know, that book was like very vital and a turning point for me, both in my faith and even in my sort of longer term vocation. I read it when I was 19, maybe 20. And I still remember the introduction of those three authors talking about 
putting their notes down on maybe scraps of napkins and papers in a Greek restaurant in DuPont Circle um, in Washington, D.C. in some year in the 60s. And I know that I'm pretty sure I've been to that restaurant. It was like a deli, Greek deli kind of place. And I sort of get shivers going there because the book was so impactful. But, you know, it was it came upon sort of a time in my life when I was exposed to the mysteries of sort of pain and poverty and selfless love all together. And um, I, I won't go into that story, but um, I was really trying, I think um, my understanding both specifically of kind of the God of, uh, you know, Judaism and Christianity, as well as um, I think and almost sort of encounters with an otherworldly love I had experienced from those who had almost nothing to give. Um, just, I was wrestling with how these paradoxes of why did, why did the sort of spiritual depths of a person somehow seem forged through extraordinary suffering or through being really neglected or being really marginalized. And um, I was drawn to it, but afraid of the suffering. And I think this book, Compassion, which is of course naturally translated to suffer with, gave me language and portraits of the same God that I was getting to know more deeply and also of like a, a more sort of trustworthy form of love that was fearsome and yet also really, really tender. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I hope, I hope compassion is a part of my life, but it's more that I think it was, um, there's just, it was, a, it, it wasn't approaching problems or the problem of pain from a fix it standpoint. The book really encourages, it's all about accompaniment an encounter and it just it somehow captured the mysteries that I continue to face in my own life anytime there's darkness in my own life or darkness in someone's life I know and love to say nothing of our broader society this year um in globe that there's just like riches to need mind when all has been stripped away um and especially in the religious context I think I feel like I have been so fortunate to um have been really compelled by a tradition that um, has within it like one who suffered and one who cries with you and, and so on. So it's just, it, it kind of gave me just a tenderness in the um, I guess flavor of faith that I'm really drawn to and the flavor of persons that I'm really drawn to. Um, it asks a question within it, you know, it says, how do we live a compassionate life is our guiding ideal, a life of maximum pleasure and minimum pain. And it, it, it's, it to me comes back to your questions of character you know, what are we, what has become our, our core determination and, uh, and how are we going forward with that? Um, have you read any others of, of Henry's books? Are you at all familiar with other writings by Henry Nowen? Uh, yes. Uh, I don't have all the titles in front of me, but yes, Life of the Beloved and In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Leadership. Um, uh, there's one that is like a series of his diary entries he wrote to himself when he was really depressed and I'm blanking on what it's called. The, maybe the inner voice it. of love. Maybe that was the, the, the inner voice of love. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's actually very, a cool story is, um, some years ago I worked at this ecumenical retreat center in West Texas called Laity Lodge. And about a mile from the main lodge is a, something called the Quiet House, and the the lodge is very ecumenical. So Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox have come there over the years as well as secular folks. But it is rooted in a sort of Protestant tradition, 
and in the 60s and 70s, before this became more sort of happenstance in the Protestant world, they wanted to sort of borrow from the Catholic monastic tradition and build a little cabin that would encourage silent retreats for married couples and singles. And long story short, I was working for this retreat center years ago in, in Texas, and um, I had this journalistic background, so they asked me to come and go through these journal entries that had been kept in diaries in this tiny little cabin in the middle of the woods for 45 years um, since the beginning, and they wanted to sort of archive it. So I'm going through, and I'm all by myself, and I was kind of personally going through a bit of a tough time in life, and I'm reading all these, trying to put my journalistic eye on, but also feeling quite like it's very touching to read these, basically people describing their encounters with God or these spiritual experiences in the woods in this house. And I'm turning, turning, turning the pages, and I'm in like 1971 or two, somewhere around there. And I see this beautiful handwriting, and um, it's saying something like, you know, wow, I'm so grateful to have had the leisure or to have had the gift of being able to stay here. Um, this is very thin air in these woods and I just, you know, it's much closer access to the inner voice and to God. And, um, while here I've been able to finish three books, um, uh, a book of something, something, a book of prayer, compassion, and one other, and I'm reading this and I'm thinking the whole time, Oh, I wish, I wonder if this person is still alive because I, I just love the way they talk and I feel we would be friends and, I can't believe he also loved Henry Mallon because that book changed my life. And so I turn the page and it keeps going. And at the end, it says, with so much thanks to the H.E. Butt Family Foundation that, you know, um, built this place, uh, signed Henry J.M. Mallon. Oh, <laughs> in wow. Letters. So <laughs> you have to believe for staying in a cabin that hadn't been renovated in 45 years and possibly sleeping on the same mattress that Henry Mallon himself. I mean, uh. it was just like. Goosebumps, like you can't believe it. it was very special so yeah. I feel like I haven't read all of his books but I've read some of his private thoughts <laughs> well I was I was listening to somebody talk the other day and they said it was like Henry knew the cartography of the heart and I think that's such a great description oh, because that's a place we can all go to and you don't have a denominational barrier when you start talking heart language Henry knew the map of the human heart and he he spoke so honestly about his own heart if you read a book like The Inner Voice of Love, that's that, that's a time of great struggle in his life, and yet there's such an intimacy and honesty in it. And uh, it, it pulls us forward into that kind of realness that, that we're allowed to have and that we can give to others. And um, it's interesting, interesting. What a unique experience that you overlapped with Henry, and as you said, maybe slept in his bed. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's really special. What are you up to these days? Tell us about what's happening with Comment Magazine and, and what's your vision for this? Where are you heading? Yeah, well, Comment has, um, I'm really excited. I feel we're sort of poised at um, a, a fresh season of growth. We had a bit of a, I think, sort of pre-growth detour this year when the pandemic hit. We decided to sort of um, link up with a, a variety of other sort of uh, like-minded but distinct publications and think tanks and nonprofits and seminaries and so on to create this uh, platform called Breaking Ground, which I'm running um, uh, as well as running Comment. And it's just, it's an attempt to try to bring a theological sort of reflection and voice looking at the past, trying to see what's being revealed in all the crises of this year and trying to reimagine new institutions and um, new ways of being going forward from a distinctively sort of what we would call like 2000 years of Christian social thought. And we're doing it in partnership with all these other 
organizations. And so that's been a big lift and total adventure and some days really, really exciting and encouraging and other days, you know, it's just been a very, um, you know, difficult year, I think to see clearly, or I have found it, uh, that way. Um, but so that has happened and we'll probably turn into some other, you know, I'll sort of release it next year and it may become something else breaking ground. Well, so I'll return to really focusing on comet. And, you know, my vision when I, when I inherited this amazing little publication was to honor, you know, it's always been known as like deeply thoughtful and, a little less sort of focused on ideological positioning or the world of faith vis-a-vis politics and much more on, you know, look, how do you love your neighbor well? And it does so in a really serious way, drawing from, you know, 2,000 years of tradition, but also very sociologically and culturally sensitive. Um, and so I didn't, I've wanted to only continue that and perhaps deepen and broaden it by bringing in a wider array of voices that I feel, whether it's voices from you know, the African-American church or many more Catholics or indigenous voices or um, Latins and Vietnamese. And I think because my own faith experience has been so cross-cultural in its past, I just feel like it's such a pity if only one group of dem- people demographics are kind of expressing sort of theological convictions from their cultural norms. So I'm trying to just widen the tent and, um, yeah, we will, we, we maintain sort of a, um, I, another thing I try to do is bring kind of practitioners and thinkers onto the same pages so they kind of converse with one another. And that just feels, you know, the whole thing in some ways is like a publication that's seeking to build bridges between sectors, between cultural groups, between cerebral folks and more sort of street saints, um, as I call them. And uh, we'll just continue doing that primarily through the print magazine, but we'll, we're also, we've got some fun plans to really expand our online offerings and um, also mo- I think most importantly try to build like really meaningful communities that are conversing about our content and where we're just really the trampoline for people to re-knit better relationships in their neighborhoods and think about the good life and the well-ordered society and all of those kind of questions from a position of hope um, and to do so in a way that's engaged and where they're relating with others and we get to be the sort of the the prompt that um, catalyzes a, a slightly more thoughtful, slightly deeper conversation. So, Well, we are delighted to have this time with you. It means an awful lot. I'm so grateful. I can tell our audience that the reason that I found you was because we at the Henry Nowen Society have been developing the Wisdom Project, which is something that we're gearing for grade fours and is looking at virtues. And and um, we, we felt like this was a place we wanted to put our foot in the door and we're getting some uh, positive, positive help with that. But it was interesting mm. because it was uh, one of my, one of my people who said, "Oh, you've got to connect with Ann Snyder, and you've got to read this book." And I was just really inspired. So I want to tell people that um, you, it is a very good book, and I really encourage you. The fabric of character is worth getting. I also want to encourage you uh, to connect with comment. We'll make sure all those links are on our website uh, when when you're. Uh, when you go looking to see what you want to find from today's conversation. Uh, It's been a delight to talk with you. I think you're one of the brightest young minds out there and you're obviously doing some really interesting work. And I loved, as you described it, you're you're part of building a big tent, a big vision, uh, a a fresh vision. Um, And I I so appreciate you and I, I wish you well in all you do. Thank you. It's been a joy to be with you. Thanks so much. So nice to be with you too. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I'm confident this talk with Ann Snyder has given you some challenging ideas to consider and true inspiration for your heart and spirit. I hope you're going to share it with others. For more resources related to today's podcast, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You can find the additional content that was referenced, book suggestions, and other materials. Of course, we'd be very grateful if you'd give us a thumbs up or a good review. It helps others find that we are here and lets them know we have some rich food for the spirit from Henry Nowen to offer. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time. Mm